Hello and welcome to episode 55 of the Boss Podcast. I'm Kirk Bailey and this week as we rummage around the Boss archives of amazing talks from over 13 years of conferences, we look at building a billion dollar business with Poppy Gustafsson. Business of Software podcast, sharing sessions from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. Find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Poppy is a co-founder and CEO of Darktrace, a world-leading AI company for cyber defence named Europe's fastest growing super scale-up by Tech Tour in 2018. In this talk from Poppy, who was awarded an OBE in 2019 in recognition of her services to cybersecurity, she will discuss how Darktrace has grown to become one of the world's fastest growing cyber AI companies. She will share some of her experiences in helping to shape and scale a successful commercial strategy that has meant the company has grown incredibly quickly. Poppy will also discuss how cybersecurity has been an industry in crisis, and how Darktrace is working to fill the gap by hiring bright graduates and training them on the job, as well as using AI to do the heavy lifting. Happy listening. So uh, my name is Poppy Gustafsson, and as Mark said, I am the CEO of Darktrace, which is one of the world's most advanced cyber AI companies. And I'm here to talk to you about how we grew a company from nothing to more than $1.65 billion, yes, that wonderful unicorn status, in less than five and a half years. Now, I am a mathematician by training, and uh, after doing mathematics, I went off and became an accountant. So I joined, or I was part of the co-founding team at Darktrace, and was originally their CFO. Uh, my involvement at that time was to sort of obviously look after all the sort of financial side and really start to think about how we were going to build a business. So my first job back there five and a half years ago was I was going to create this legal entity, the sort of the Dark Trace Limited that was going to first start employing all of those people. Now, for those of you out there that have set up your own business, you probably realise this, you've got two options. You can either do it for free in company's house and it takes three days or you can pay £15 and do it on the same day. Now, as we all know, when you're trying to build up a business that's based on momentum, that speed is of everything. So I took the plunge five and a half years ago, paid that £15 to do a same-day company incorporation, and here we are five and a half years later, and I've got a a company that's worth $1.65 billion, employs more than 900 employees, that's slide is already out of date and we've got companies all across the world. Today I just want to talk to you about some of the challenges that come with scaling a business at warp speed and some of the mistakes that we made but also some of the ideas that we had along the way and how we really grew that business and made it into the successful one that is today. Um, I will talk you through a few sort of slides and a bit bit of an overview and then there'll be time for Q&A at the end. So... Back to my accounting roots, this is an incredibly ugly graph. Um, But what we lack in a graphics team, we make up for in growth. Um, This is here, is a a graph that plots our sort of headcount growth over time. You can see that it looks relatively static here. 
and then from sort of 2015 onwards, it really ramps up. And it's easy to think that this period here, where the graph is going like this, that this is where all the energy and hard work goes in. But you would be very much mistaken. So much of that preparing for growth happens here at this early stages. So the first thing that you need to do is make sure that your technology, one, is built, and secondly, that it works. So we first deployed within our customer within, within three months of founding, uh, within three months of founding, and lo and behold, it works. Well, obviously, we were quite relieved. And from there, once you've demonstrated that you're able to deploy your technology within live customer data and it's working, your next challenge is how you're going to scale that company. How are you going to take it to market and how are you going to build on what it is you can do? And then only after you've done that can you then really start ramping up in terms of growth. So the point that I want to make here is so much of the energy and the groundworks in building a scalable business happens at this point here when the numbers look fairly static and steady. And it's only when you've got all of that groundwork done and prepared can you really start turbocharging that business for your future growth. This is a far prettier slide, and it illustrates a lot of our customers that we have at Darktrace. And this is one that I'm incredibly proud of because it has brand names from a whole different bunch of uh, sectors. So you've got manufacturing, retail, financial services. You've got small hedge funds to large global organizations. And what was really important for us and our ability to scale was to be able to meet the demands of each of these customers. So before I go any further, I feel I need to give you some background about what it is that we do at Darktrace. So as I said, Darktrace is a cyber AI company. Five and a half years ago, cybersecurity was approached in a sort of fundamentally different way. It was all about keeping the bad guys off your network. It was about building a wall around your network and trying to make sure that people you didn't want on there wouldn't get on there. And obviously, that's a great approach, but it was flawed in so, so many ways. I'll just start by listing a few. First of all, it assumes that you can identify who those bad guys are. The way that it would be done is that there would be an attack, say, for example, of the big Yahoo breach, and someone would go in and say, OK, well, when Yahoo was breached, they came in here. They sort of moved around this way. They looked like this. This is what they then did next. And they would write the code of that attack into a rule or signature. Then what would happen is you would take that rule or signature, and someone would use it to look for that exact same attack within your network to see if it was happening to your environment. And of course, that meant that you're fundamentally, you're only ever going to be able to identify an attack that had happened in the past. It then relied on someone writing that rule or signature. And then it relied on your own internal IT department making sure that they were all kept up to date, which was, of course, something that was just flawed in so many different levels. And it also made the assumption that if you were within a network, that if you had made your way onto the other side of that wall, that you were there legitimately. And as many of us now know, it is naive to assume that you are immune from harm from your own employees. So the approach taken back then was flawed in so, so many ways. And this was something that we would wanted to address. So, dark trace. 
How do you solve a problem when you can't quite define the question? When you don't know what the cyber attacks of tomorrow are going to look like, how can you work about how you're going to spot them today? For us, artificial intelligence was the solution. What we created was what we called the enterprise immune system. So let's think about our own bodies. Let's think about our human immune systems. They are incredibly complex ones that have at that core that innate sense of self. By knowing what's you, you can then identify other, even if that other is a virus or bacteria that your bodies have never seen before. Your body, and then if you're infected, your bodies can adapt amount of, uh, amount of defense against that attack and write that defense into your immunological memory. At Dartrace, we use artificial intelligence to replicate that human immune system. It sat at a, sits at a network level and it monitors the pattern of life for each and every device within that organization, whether that device is a server, a laptop, your smartphone, or your internet-enabled coffee machine. It understands that usual pattern of life, that unique fingerprint for an organization. And then only when it understands that can it identify the behaviors that mean it's moving away from that normal pattern of life that could be symptomatic of an attack. So that is Darktrace, and that was our approach to cybersecurity. And it was one that was very well received, obviously off the back of uh, that phenomenal growth that I've talked to you about. And I want to talk to you about, about some of the ways that we achieve that and the things that was important to us. Now, the thing about business is that it is all just about people. Businesses are no more than a collection of wonderful individuals that all contribute to making the businesses what they are. At Dartrace, we've got slightly unconventional ways. We tend to sort of challenge the status quo in a lot of what it is that we do. First of all, we've got a co-CEO uh, model. So I'm CEO here in, in Cambridge, our headquarters over on the Innovation Center. And I've got a counterpart based in San Francisco called Nicole. Uh, it typically, I tend to look after anything sort of financial, so the investor base, anything to do with the execution and the operational and scaling the organization. Nicole has a marketing background and she tends to look after anything about the sort of product market fit and about what the future roadmap could have. That partnership works really, really well because it is born from a mutual trust and respect for each other's abilities, but also our own individual weaknesses. There's no way that I could step into her shoes and do what she does, and likewise, she values my contribution. And that partnership is what sits at the top of this organization. From there on, we, what we wanted to be able to do is you have to be able to trust the people around you. And for me, that meant that we had to be able to bring in the very, very best talent that we were able to do so. Now, that that perspective of what the best looks like can be very different. So when we first founded, people were saying, when you're scaling your sales organization, you are a very, very technical business. You're doing AI and mathematics. And if you want to be able to go out there and sell it to the world, you need someone that can get up on and draw a very complicated architecture on a whiteboard explaining all of that mathematics. Then they need to be able to go and present that to the customer, look impeccable in a shirt and tie, and be a very charming and lovely person alongside it as well. Now, 
there is a huge, huge cyber skills deficit out there. There's just not enough talent to go around. And so, as you can imagine, those people are relatively few and far between. And at this point, I'd already hired all of them. So if I was to rely on being able to hire this perfect person, there's no way that I was going to be able to get to the 900 people that we are today in the time that we needed. So we scratched our heads and we thought, well, let's try this a slightly different way. The people that we're talking to, they all understand the cyber problem. All we need to be talking to them about is our product. So I just need to be able to bring in bright, clever, ambitious people that can know and love my product and communicate to that customer base. So we ran a bit of an experiment. We had one sort of typical enterprise sales person that we brought on board that had lots of uh, very, very extensive sales experience. And we brought on this wonderful graduate um, called Katie who had no prior experience but was bright as a button and super sharp. Uh, within about six months, the difference was completely stark. That old school enterprise salesperson is no longer with us and Katie heads up a sales force now of more than 120 people. And that ability to change the hiring model and challenge the status quo of what should be expected suddenly meant that I was able to hire a vast pool of talent. People coming out of university with brilliant credentials but perhaps less experience. I was able to bring them in and train them up on our product very quickly. And that was one of the key reasons that we were able to uh, access a lot of the talent that we see in front of us today. There I was feeling very sort of self-congratulatory, thinking I've just smashed this scaling problem. Look at all these brilliant people that we've got around us. But the other thing that brought this to the organization, which I hadn't perhaps realized at the time, was that these people were so, so good at challenging the status quo. They weren't weighed down with thinking, oh, that's always the way that it's been done, that's the normal. And a good example of this is back in the early days, we were all sitting around, scratching our heads, thinking, how are we going to reduce the length of our sales cycle? Now, what was typical at the time there, especially within software, is that you would go and you would demonstrate your technology working within the live customer environment, normally doing what we call a proof of value. And typically, that proof of value lasted three months, and you just really showcase it working in that environment. And we're scratching our heads thinking, how do we get the sales cycle down? How do we get the sales cycle down? And then one of the grads that you know, didn't know that the industry norm was three months just said, why are you doing it for three months? Just do it in three weeks. And we sort of scratched our heads and thought, hmm, why didn't we think of that? Yeah, okay, great idea. Next day, it was all three weeks rather than three months. And that reduced our sales cycle down by 70 days alone. And even me, even someone that likes to think of myself as someone that's always, always trying to turn things on its head, I was still weighed down with that perception that it needed to be a particular way. And having that brilliant, talent, talented people around me that made sure that we were always challenging ourselves really meant that we were unable to unlock a different approach and a different way of being able to do things. The important thing, though, as you scale and you bring all of these people in, is that you've got to make sure that those people all feel part of that same organization. They've all got to feel plugged into sort of the dark trace culture and way of being. And as you scale a business to more than 40 global offices, that culture is a really, really important part of that. One of the things that we do internally is by constantly recognizing the individual within the organization as well as the collective. And that can happen in many small ways. So for example, when the World Cup is on, 
um, our COO is a huge football fan. And every day that there was a match, he would say what the match was, what the competition was, and then he would list all the people in the organization that were supporting that particular team, and maybe just a sort of little bit of a commentary about them and what, their, what they were doing, what their role at Dartrace was. And that was a great way of sort of celebrating many of the individuals all across the world, some of whom are working in remote offices where maybe there's only a handful of people, and letting the world realize that they're all still part of Dark Trace and letting them realize that they're part of a much bigger team, many of whom have got the same shared interests. And I think small things like that are really very important, especially when you're growing a big organization. When you're based in HQ, you can often feel, you feel like part of a big company because you're there. But if you've got a small satellite office out in Malaysia, you cannot forget that they also need to feel plugged into what is a growing and vibrant company. Now, having a relatively young uh, workforce that's very, very talented and very ambitious, but perhaps uh, with a lower a level of experience, because the company's only five years itself, so many of them ha don't have that many years of tenure, one of the things that we're very good at Dartrace is accelerating them up through the ranks quickly. So we pride ourselves on our ability to spot that spark of talent and nurture it and pull people up. But what it means is that you're very quickly asking people to come up and out of their comfort zone. And you can sort of pour responsibility onto these onto people, and the, and the right people really flourish under it. But it has to be under the right circumstances. When you're asking someone to operate outside of their comfort zone, it has to be done in a supportive environment, and one where they, cannot, they won't be criticized for failing. It's all about have, giving it a go letting people experiment, letting people have a try, but you cannot punish them when they fail if you're asking them to do something that's over and above where they would normally expect to do. Pulling people up and asking them to do more really becomes a sort of self-fulfilling circle. The more you ask of them, the more they will deliver. The more that ambition rises and the more that people around them see that those that do well, those that work hard and those that perform are the ones that are recognized and pulled up. And that's one of the really important founding sort of cultural principles at Dartrace. Now, I talked about in the opening about momentum and incorporating that company in the same day for that 15 quid rather than waiting the, 30, uh, waiting the three days. But when you're scaling a business, momentum is everything. By definition, when you're Working in tech innovation, you need to be the first person out there and, and doing it the best that you possibly can before any, of the, any competition has any chance of keeping up. And momentum has to be pervasive all across the entire business in everything that you do. But much like sort of sitting in a Formula One car in a racetrack, what can be thrilling and exciting and the pace and the momentum is an experience that some people haven't felt before and it's very, very thrilling. But it's not always comfortable. There's no cup holder. You're probably going to splash your coffee all over your lap. And it's wrong of you to perhaps to pretend that it will always be comfortable. There will be sharp edges. But those are things to celebrate. That's what makes it fun and exhilarating. So one of the common themes about Dartrace is, is, and what I've been talking about today, is challenging the status quo, 
and walking the path less traveled, trying to see things differently and doing it in a different way that hasn't been done before. By definition, when you're solving a new problem, you cannot simply follow the way it always has been done before. You've got to think about things differently. And when sometimes when you're doing things and you're the only one out of your peers that are doing that, uh, if you're moving away from the industry and doing something different, sometimes you'll feel, look around you and it'll feel lonely and you'll question yourself and you think, is this the right approach? But by definition, when you are defining a new way of things to do, there won't be other people that are doing the same way as you. And you've got to do it with boldness and confidence. Um, I've talked a lot about the way that Darktrace challenges the status quo in terms of the hiring, in terms of our, our sales model. The fact that we've got a co-CEO uh, partnership at the top, that's something that's quite unheard of. And also, let's face it, the fact that we're also both women, that is something that's very uh, rarely seen in the technology industry. But these are all the things that have enabled us to succeed. Now... Before I move on to some Q&A, I just want to take this opportunity to talk a little bit about my sort of perceptions on technology and what I see the future is. Like, I'm a, I'm a tech co-founder. I love technology. I find it one of the most exciting things. Like, you think about the way that technology has enabled all of our businesses, whether it's about moving uh, our data to the cloud, it's the internet-enabled coffee machine in your office that lets you pre-order your coffee on your break from your smartphone. It's your smart TVs that allow your workforce to work from anywhere in the world and still conference in. These are all incredibly, incredibly exciting tech innovations that are allowing our businesses to become faster and smarter than ever before. I never want to be afraid of embracing all of these new technologies into our world. And it's not about to stay still. I've got two young daughters, and when they are in their adulthood, they're going to look back and they're going to try and remember the most antiquated piece of technology that they can possibly pull back from the depths of their memories. And the oldest thing that they can possibly imagine will be a smartphone. I find that absolutely incredulous. The world is the most technologically advanced it has ever been, and it's not about to slow down anytime soon. But just as we as a society, we invented the car, and then we invented the seatbelt to keep us safe and allow us to enjoy our cars, as we move through our future and embrace all of these new technologies and bring them into our businesses to feel the benefits of them, Cyber defense is just simply the next step in human innovation and allowing us to embrace all of that new technology safely. Cybersecurity has got a bit of a sort of nagging perception. It's that sort of small voice in the back of your mind that's berating you for using your Facebook password in your work emails. But for me, cyber defense is a huge, huge business enabler. And getting that right is exactly the right thing that will allow us to move into our sort of digital futures more safely. So that's all that I have for me. If anyone has got any questions, I would be welcoming with them. Hi. Um, <coughs> uh, was 1.6 billion always the plan? <laughs> no. So if I think back to when we first founded, it's, having those goals are always really important. 
And the goal in the early days was this week, we're going to get two meetings. <laughs> and everything was about getting to those two meetings. And then it built up from there. It became 10 meetings. And then it's, we're going to get a demo at one of those 10 meetings. We have always, always had goals in our mind and what it is that we want to achieve. But honestly, it has never been evaluation. And also, the fact that we've got to that 1.65, it, it, does, it doesn't feel like we're there. It doesn't, we're constantly, constantly pushing onto the next thing. I talked a little about what we're doing in terms of the technology today in the enterprise immune system. But we're doing so much more now in terms of sort of autonomous response. So the ability for AI to actually take steps in remediating cyber problems within your network. That's something that's very, very exciting. That's something that no one else has ever done before. And that's something that's a big focus for us now. So yes, whenever I'm up on stage, I talk about the 1.65 billion. It's something that we celebrate because to be a unicorn status is something that is hugely proud of. But if anything, the momentum is just snowballing and snowballing, and we're constantly looking forward to, to whatever's next, and it tends to be sort of product-led rather than, rather than valuation. So, no, we haven't finished. <laughs> okay, there was someone... Who's got the mic? Over? Oh, Chris. Hi, um, similar question. Um, we find ourselves constantly asking ourselves, um, are we prematurely optimising or scaling everything from software to processes to infrastructure? So similar question, it, it, your planned line of um, headcount, does that look like what we saw? And if it's not, were you sort of prematurely optimizing? How did you sort of choose? No, I think you can't, you can't run a business to a spreadsheet. So you can't sit there and think, oh, this is what the world's going to look like, and as long as I follow this path, then I'm heading in the right direction. Having those near-term goals are really, really important to be able to sort of respond and move in the direction that you need to and knowing where you, you need to hire those heads. I think one of the key things for me is thinking about when, when to start scaling an organization is that in your business, you will always have those brilliant people of which everyone relies on. You know, that person that when the internet breaks, they're running around with their hair on fire fixing it or when... The bolt on the front door broke, they're the person that sorts that. Or when you need a cover for some big meeting in the US and they've got to fly out the next day, they're the person that you put on their plane. They're the sort of real superheroes of an organization that you know you become very quickly you need to rely on. It's really important that you identify who those people are and then you replace them with process. So it's not about taking those people out of the organization, absolutely not, because it, but it's about replacing their need to run around with their hair on fire with a team of people that are resilient and can build in that process. Now, those people are still really important. They'll then, they'll then spend their time uncovering some other problem and running around with their hair on fire fixing that. And then you just follow them through the organization, building up sort of process and structure around that. Because otherwise, you very quickly realize that they become a sort of gating factor in your ability to scale. So that's one of my early tips, is spot who those people are within the organization. Keep them, celebrate them but make sure you build resilience and around them because before you know it, they'll become a, a restricting factor in your ability to scale quickly. This side. Hello. What was the tipping point for Dark Trace? We obviously saw the, the list of the clients that you have, the hockey stick growth of the employees count. 
What happened then? Obviously, something has to happen. Was that a client? Was that a change in processes? It was, I know exactly what it was. It was, and it, it, at the time, you don't realize it's the tipping point. It's only when you reflect back that you do. And it was our first ever customer win. And it was with a big energy supplier in the UK. And it was the first time that a customer paid us money. And suddenly, everything became validated. The sales force suddenly thought, wait, this is brilliant. It works. Would you believe it? The tech team was suddenly like, yes, it's great. You know, actually, someone wants to pay some money. And you break down that, that challenge of tech versus commercial that everyone has, that are you building a product that the customer wants? Are you selling something that they need? It validates all of that. Tech suddenly realize that what they're doing is working, and commercial suddenly realize they've got a team that works. And it just snowballs and escalates from then. And then the enthusiasm and the excitement is just then becomes contagious, and then it becomes self-fulfilling. So that was absolutely one of the very big tipping points for us. Thanks. Um, I just wanted to ask, how would you describe the culture at Darktrace and how do you maintain or consistency of culture when you're growing that fast with remote teams? The hiring is, is the number one. The people that you hire will define the culture of your organization. And you can sort of set the tone, but really it's all of those people that make up the 900 headcount. It's them that sets the tone of that organization. So for us, what at Darktrace is really important is ambition, High, high expectations of not only of themselves, but also of the business around them. And what that means is that everyone continuously wants to be better. They're always thinking about the next six months and what do we need to be doing to be the company that's now $2.5 billion or $5 billion, whatever it is, but always sort of looking ahead and not accepting what we did yesterday as good enough and always making sure it pushes on. But we're also very much a meritocracy, like... We pride ourselves on making sure that we promote the people that are best for the job. We don't have a time-served thing. It doesn't pay into our consideration. It's purely about the most talented people in the, in the best roles. Thanks. Um, apologies if this is not an appropriate question, <laughs> and feel free not to answer. But um, what mechanisms do you have in place to successfully run a unicorn company and a young family? Uh, I probably, does anyone ever do it successfully? No. You just do it the best you can and you continuously make mistakes, whether it's doing some last minute prep for a conference, which means you've printed all your keynotes on your daughter's colouring card. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's something to celebrate. I love the fact that my family see me up here and working, and I love the fact that I leave the business early because I've got to go and go to parents' eating at the school. Like, you will always get one of them wrong, and you'll always make mistakes, but I enjoy making mistakes because it's something that I want the people around me to look up and think, oh, yes, actually, it's okay to make mistakes. We all do it. It's nothing to be ashamed of. Just don't do it twice. Uh, Nick, you've got the mic. Thanks, Poppy. It's really exciting to have a unicorn-valued company on the same park that we work. Uh, so my question is all about the first year or two. So could you just tell us about when you took investment, what the stages were, and what the real triggering milestones were at the time? Thanks. Yeah, so we had our seed investment very early on, and obviously was, that was just there to keep us sort of the day-to-day -day running. 
And from there, after our first big investment, it was probably about 15 months after that. Now, the investors that you take on have to be sort of aligned with what it is that you're doing strategically. So for us, it was about, one, providing sort of credibility and setting the pace for your aspirations. So having a really good suite of sort of top-tier investors was important to us. And then thinking about the next stage thereafter was all about international growth. So some of the things that our investors were really, really good for us was brokering a lot of introductions into new markets. So when we moved into Asia, we had some investors that were very well placed in Asia and ditto in the US as well. And that meant that you had the credibility in the market. So for in the US, if you've got listed in your investors, a big prestigious US investor, that sort of validates the technology, but also they can help sort of broker those introductions and ditto in Asia. So having a good sort of diverse range of investors that are sort of matched for your level of scale uh, was, was really helpful to us in, in being able to get there. Although I do have to be nice about them because one of them is in this room. I, uh, Alex, at the back there, your first boss. Uh, Poppy, thanks so much for sharing your insights. Uh, one thing you mentioned was that hiring young employees who have that spark of brilliance is a core part of your hiring strategy. How do you make sure that they have the support they need? For example, for engineers, do you look at the ratio of senior engineers to junior engineers, or how do you make sure that they are fully supported as they train up? Um, Looking for some more material for his talk, which is on this exact subject later on. <laughs> that, uh, training is one of the most important things. Uh, and to be honest, it's not something that we always got right in the early years. It's only when you, you, you heard me talk a lot about bringing people in and then pulling them up quickly. Uh, if you don't get that right and without the right training and support, then people very quickly flounder. So being able to have that sort of continuous training element is so, so important to us, not only because then they feel that they're getting the resource that they need, but because it creates a whole peer group for them between the organization. So what we like to do is if you've got people raising up maybe through the sales ranks and through the marketing ranks, if you compare their training up, if they're coming up through the middle management and you can say, here's your peers in each of these divisions, and then suddenly you create this sort of cohort and peer group that acts as a sort of good sort of self-help and they can bounce ideas about. And if they've got a problem that they're a bit nervous about asking, they've got a, a friend that they works in marketing that they can draw on their expertise, then that's really, really useful, sort of creating that sort of cohort and, and peer group that they can work through that's sort of multi-departmental uh, was, was really useful to us. But ongoing training, especially when the remote offices, is really important. So we bring them back to the UK quite a lot and vice versa. We spend a lot of time, the senior execs will go out to remote offices to give them some presence and make them, help them to see uh, the bigger picture from the rest of the organization. Thank you, we're getting a lot of questions stacked here, so. Hi, um, which were the moments that were more challenging for your company culture? As in moments where you thought, like, it could break the company culture. There are moments of uh, super tension, difficulties, challenges, uh, where you really need to reshuffle, refocus on your core values uh, and systems. One of the challenges that I've resisted, but is often a, a feeling that you need to bring in senior hires from the outside rather than promote from the within. That's something that, because we celebrate the fact that we're a meritocracy very heavily and it's very important to each of us, 
that's something that has to always be looked at very carefully because it can otherwise be something that really rocks the boat. So whilst it sort of feels like a good idea and in a particular hire, it absolutely might be the right answer, it really then sets the tone for the rest of the organisation if they feel, suddenly feel like, oh, why should I work so hard if someone's just going to get brought in above me? But one of the great things about having a business that grows so fast is that when you pull more and more people in, naturally you tend to be filling it up from the bottom and everyone's there is it tends to lift. So I think that's one of the biggest things sort of culturally for us that we sort of guarded against is being very, very cautious about dropping in senior hires over and above people that have put in blood, sweat and tears to be able to sort of get to where they have. Awesome. Because it's hard Hello. to see. <laughs> Hi, Poppy. Thank you so much for Hello, your talk. Um, I was curious in hearing your growth as a company, obviously headcount growth, uh, customer growth. I was curious though, specifically though, about your personal growth as a leader. And for so many of us who are managers and CEOs in this room, what is maybe the biggest thing you wish you would have learned earlier in your leader or in your, in your journey in that growth and just as a leader? So one of the ones that's really stark for me is the way you communicate. So I'm very much a collaborator. I will bring people into a room and say, got this problem, have no idea what the answer is, but let's give this a try, and if it looks like it's not working, then we'll change our minds and do something else. And these are probably going to be the key signs that something's not working. And you can bring people in the room, be completely open and honest and transparent, and you can hold your hands up and say, don't really know what the answer is, but let's give it a go. And that we found our way around a lot of problems, and it was great. And you can only really do that, though, with an organisation that's probably up to about sort of 100 people. Now, what I've realised as the organisation at the scale it is, is I have to be completely black and white in all of my communications. Like, there can no, not be any middle territory, because by the time it's filtered through the organisation, it's completely open to misinterpretation. So, I, I, I cannot introduce any ambiguity. So, it will be, we are going to do this, it will be done by Thursday, and it will work. Um, and obviously, you've still got your core team around you that you can bring in and sort of uh, and collaborate with and bounce some ideas around. But whereas before, you could bring people on the journey much more with you and articulate what your worries and concerns are, at the scale that we are now, I just can't afford to because it just introduces too much um, complexity and it's open to uh, misinterpretation. So that's one of the biggest things that I've noticed for me myself is that the way I communicate is now much more black and white than it used to be on a, on a smaller company. Cool. Daria, your first boss. Hi. Um, I have a question about customers and your product pipeline. A lot of times when you're sort of a small, a small company pitching to large utilities or whatever, they want you to do sort of custom things for them and they threaten you not to sign the contract if you don't do it. So how do you balance doing too much custom work versus sticking to your pipeline? And have you had to reject customers because what they wanted wouldn't fit into what you wanted to do as a product? Yeah, so really good question. Like it's so, oh, in those early days when you're building a business and you're so proud of your technology, and then suddenly you have these big banks that say, hey, would come, come and show us what you do. And you think, oh, this is great. I've got Goldman or whatever, and they want to test out this tech. It's going to be so exciting. And then you go in there, and they want you to do some bespoke customization thing. And you've 
spent a, suddenly you realize you spent a year there and they're still not moving any further forward. And then you're so invested in, in getting this right because you spent a year that you sort of feel like you're then going to carry on and keep going. Really early on, we made an active decision to avoid those huge, huge organizations because time was absolutely of the essence and we couldn't afford to get lost into some huge, tedious sales cycle that ultimately could end up going nowhere and would cost a lot of dev effort and making bespoke solutions for this, that, and the other. And so we very much focused on those smaller much more cookie cutter to really rehearse the sales model and understand how that works. And only once you've got to that level of scale can you absorb those sort of bigger projects. There's always going to be some that require something bespoke. And whilst we have what I consider an incredible sales model, you cannot always prescriptively give that to the larger customers. They will expect you to accommodate them. But once you are very, very well rehearsed in your own sales model, you're much more comfortable in saying, I hear what you're saying, this is what you're worried about, I can demonstrate it through you in this three week, and this is how I'm going to do it. Your, your confidence in shaping the customer and the way they want to see it becomes much more validated once you've rehearsed that multiple, multiple, multiple times on, on a much smaller customer base. But avoiding those big time sinks was an active decision and one that I'm really pleased of in the first 12 months. I don't know where the mic is. Speak. I think you may have just <laughs> answered part of uh, this question, which mm -hmm. was yeah. for you to give us a bit more detail on how you did reduce your three-month sales cycle into three weeks. So, um, so you've answered some of it there, but is, have you been able to influence your potential customers in their decision-making to make the sales cycle shorter. Yeah, absolutely, because it's actually remarkably easy. You, you feel like you can't do it because everyone is doing a three-month proof of value. You feel like you've got to do a three-month proof of value because that's what the customer's expecting. But the customer's ex expecting what you teach them to expect. So if you go in and just say, this is going to be a three-week proof of value and I'm going to show you all the value that you need to see within that time frame, and then you do... It's, it's very easy to then three weeks later come and say, here's your contract, would you like to sign it? Because you have set those expectations from day one. So it's, it's, it's much easier to change the customer's perception of what your sales cycle looks like than you, you feel like it is from when you're on the inside the company looking out. You feel that they're going to be expecting something different. The reality is the customer's... It's up to you to set the expectations of what your sales cycle will look like. And as long as you do it confidently, articulately, and make sure you've addressed their concerns, it was remarkably easy just to reduce that down. Uh, Chris. Hi, Hello. Thanks for sharing your story. That was really interesting. Um, you built your business by identifying young, bright talent. Uh, but that can actually be much more difficult than finding experienced guys because they don't have the CV and they don't have the experience. It's very hard to actually identify those individuals. What measures did you put in place to actually work out who was going to be successful, who was the right fit? Uh, I think I disagree with you there. I think it's much easier to spot raw talent when you're not trawling through a multi-page CV that, <laughs> <laughs> that could be described in any which way. When someone's in front of you and it's just them and they're just articulating their love and their passion and what motivates them, 
it's so much easier to spot because you're not weighed down with that, oh, I've seen that this is what is on their CV before, therefore you, they must be good at A, B, and C. You don't make any of those extrapolations. You just see the person in front of you and you have a conversation and you can spot quite quickly whether they're someone that you want to be part of your organisation. But also you can take bigger gambles. Like you can bring in a number of people and if one of them decides it's just not for them and they've decided to go off and become a poet or something instead, that's completely okay. Uh, whereas when you're at the more senior end of the spectrum and they're paying an absurd salary, that's not the sort of kind of gamble that you can take. So I, I, yeah, I disagree. I think it's much, much easier to spot that talent in a, a less experienced person. Are you enjoying our rapid-fire questioning? I am, it's yeah. Relentless, I isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I it's love like, it. <laughs> yeah, keep them coming. Um, Sean, at the back. Hello. Okay. Hello. So um, at one of the business of software conferences in Boston, we were asked a few years ago to identify our CNN moment, uh, identify, defined as your company is now on the news internationally, and there's mass mayhem, and your company is at the core of it. Poppy, what's your CNN moment, and how are you? <laughs> how are you? How are you trying to avoid that? Oh goodness me! Luckily, it's not something that has happened to us yet. So, but I don't. I don't know. Maybe it's one of the sort of traps of being part of this fast-growth company is that it's the future feels so difficult to sort of imagine and articulate, sort of worrying about what we're getting to in the sort of next month, six months is very much the focus. But the things that uh, we, we worry about, um, it's just making, I guess it's got to be there up there, making sure that we keep our own, our own business in order, that we're there protecting our, we're protecting so many organizations today. There's thousands of them that are out there protected by Dartrace, making sure that we continue to keep our software as best as it can be and that we have no one else that comes in there and does something that we think, shit, we should have done that six months ago. And making sure that we are always on that cutting edge of, of innovation and whatever's going to become the best practice when it comes to cyber in the next year, I want to be making sure that we're at the cutting edge of that and when, that someone else doesn't come in and step in our toes and do it before us. Fantastic. Ryan here. Welcome. Hi, Poppy. Um, thanks for sharing your story. So there's a, there was a bit of a hot debate this morning um, about investors and financiers, um, whether I'd say half the room found them to be enablers and then the other half found them to be meddlers. Now, my background is uh, I work for one of the big banks and we, uh, we finance uh, technology companies. What advice would you have for the room as someone that's utilized um, investors successfully, uh, specifically for those businesses are at that stage now where they're deciding whether to go for investment slash financing or otherwise? Uh, w well, investors Specifically are. in choosing a good investor slash financier. What do I, you look for specifically or what have you looked for when you, when you went through your different uh, rounds of raising? Yeah, so I think a lot of that is about the sort of geographic growth, but also the sort of that soft validation. Having a, an investor of, you know, first class pedigree and very sort of reputable and people that are very well known and have sort of good tech expertise having them as someone that is publicly backing your business is such fantastic validation. And so not only, obviously, does the money that they invest are hugely important in growing a business and being able to invest in that future growth, but that having their brand associated with your company is very important. And then, obviously, expertise and about um, in sort of international growth and things like that. And also some, a lot of partnerships 
that we've undertaken. So a lot of tech partnerships have been brokered by our investors. And their ability to sort of be able to access at the top level is, is very important to us. When you're a young sort of scale-up company, sometimes you can't sort of immediately tap into the C-suite that you need to be able to. Whereas if you've got an investor that can broker that introduction for you, that's, that's hugely valuable. There's a lot more discussion around investors. I got the sense slightly that there were a few people that were quite, I'm doing my own thing. I think investment is neither necessary nor evil in a um, business. Some businesses work for um, different types of investing and there are a few conversations that we've and organized around lunch about that as well. So. The other thing that they're very good at is knowing the market. So mm. for them to be able to say, oh, that's interesting. We've seen company A, B and C doing that. You can think, oh, that's that will often shape your view about whether something's worth pursuing or not. Maybe you want to do it differently. But their ability to know what else is happening in the market is, is far greater than I could just simply do myself. Yes, okay. So Mark, then we've got Carlos, and then yeah, go quick. When you're the CEO and the founder of the, the company, unless you're an incredibly arrogant and overconfident Steve Jobs, there's quite often an internal dialogue or external, if you have investors, dialogue to be had on whether you as the founder have actually got the right person running the company, particularly as the company changes. I'm curious as to whether you've had that dialogue with yourself and how it's going. <laughs> well, I am a numbers person. So what's really great for me is that you can measure success. So as long as you can think this is what we want to achieve, and then here are some numbers that proven that we've got here, then that becomes sort of quite a simple argument to be having yourself. But you change as well a lot. Like early on when I was a co-founder, when it very first started, could I imagine myself doing what I do today, running this business of 900 people? No. But then you get out there and do it, and you realize that you can do it. And so I think it's appropriately that you continually readdress your own skills and talents and recognize that what you're good at, but also that what you're not very good at. And no one's good at everything. And the stuff that you're a bit shit at, you can either get someone else in to come and help you support you do it, or maybe there will come a time when you realize that you're not necessarily the right person to do it. But having an open dialogue where you can articulate what is expected of you and whether you're standing up to that is, is very important, only for your, your own self-confidence as well and being able to sort of execute on that as well. Go. Rissa. Uh, yeah, hi. Uh, given that AI is at the core of what you do, have you ever been able to apply that to grow your business? Y yes, we do. A lot of what we do internally is, is using AI. Like, we think ourselves very much as an AI company, and we happen to be doing cyber, and that's it's incredibly exciting. We are the only at-scale deployment of AI in the enterprise. So we're, AI is going to unlock so much future tech, and to be at the front of that wave is very, very exciting. And yes, we're using AI internally an incredible amount. So, but you have to do it cautiously. So we've got a brilliant team of cyber analysts. And in the early days, they spent a lot of their time when, you know, I talked about that proof of value. They would write a report that says, hey, customer, this is what the tech saw for you during this proof of value phase. Isn't it good? Don't you love it? And it became, when you reach that scale and volume, you, can't, you just can't scale it without suddenly recruiting lots of human beings to keep writing those reports. So instead, we used AI to be able to incorporate a lot of that report functionality into, into the product. And that meant that 
it was a little bit of a difficult thing to do culturally, internally, because suddenly you have those analysts that are thinking, oh, is my job going to be replaced by AI? So it had to have a big conversation there about, you know, we're just taking away the sort of heavy lifting. And what we're doing is allowing the human beings in the process to rise up and spend a bit more time about how we incorporate um, some of the sort of human thought process into the product and making them much more strategy and lifting off the day-to-day -day processing and what they do. So there was a big uh, important conversation internally to make sure people didn't feel threatened by using AI internally to do some of the day-to-day -day manual lifting. But once you got over that, it really was, it's just been nothing but a big business enabler and we do it constantly. So we have so much data about um, our customers and things like that. We apply a lot of AI, understanding sort of the patterns in that and about whether there's any early warning signs and anything that we need to be doing differently. So yes, we do use AI a lot internally. Great. And final question. Go on. Run. Run. Hi. I was just thinking about your proof of value phase, and I'm imagining sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So I just wonder what proof, your proof of value looks like when it works and what it looks like when it doesn't work, because I'm, I'm wondering. Um, security incident that you can squash so nothing happens and then you, you might not be able to demonstrate the value. So I just wondered what it looks like when it works and what it looks like that's, when it doesn't. Yeah, and that's a really... So we do this proof of value. We go in and we deploy within a customer environment and in the early days, you'd go in and you'd, the tech guys would be like, this is brilliant. You've got a foreign nation state all over this network. There's alarm bells ringing everywhere and it's like <laughs> a John le Carre novel. And they're like, this is great! And everyone's running around it obviously not excited because it's not very good for the customer, but for them, it's their bread and butter and it's what they're interested in and fascinated by and they would love it and the energy would be very high. And of course, you go and show that to a customer and they all just suddenly go very quiet and they're like, okay, can you leave the room now, please? They're not going to be buying the product because they're going to be re-stripping out all of their network and rebuilding it back up from ground zero. So it's understanding what that, POV looks like and what that success looked like was really interesting for us in the early days. And suddenly we realized that finding a sort of business ending cyber attack, which we would find quite a lot of, is not necessarily a good thing. It was probably the biggest indicator that a customer wasn't going to be buying because they had far bigger problems to be worrying about. Um, so then what became important to us is being able to just be able to demonstrate our capabilities. So remember that what we're there first and foremost to do is to understand an organization and then spot when something's unusual. And that unusual might not always be malicious. It could be completely uh, benign. So for example, we had one where it was a customer in a law firm and they had a swipe card to get subsidized lunch in a canteen. And what was happening is that whenever the, the employees swiped the vending machine of the drinks, all of their personal details from their cards, so their employee ID numbers and national insurance and things like that, was going off to the vending machine supplier. Now, that wasn't malicious. That, they weren't doing anything with it. But as a security professional, you'd want to be knowing that that <laughs> had occurred. <laughs> um, so what became then very important was to be able to sort of articulate why the anomalies that we had found was relevant in that context of the organization. So you could say, okay, customer A, we have seen some anomalous beaconing to this foreign country, whilst in this instance, it was your CFO who was legitimately traveling on some M&A activity. You can 
demonstrate that why this, in some instances, this would be important to do ABC, or why this could be an early indicator of something that further downstream could become something bigger. Or we saw this similar activity like this in a different customer, and it was the early stages of A, B, and C. So being able to complete that storytelling and bring the customer along saying, look, what we have shown you is the early stages of something that you can now fix easily, but if you didn't fix, could go on to become something that's far, far different. So getting that storytelling right was, was very important in, those, in that POV phase. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.